to Romans chapter 2, um, page 1129. We're going to read from verse 12 to verse 16. Romans 2, verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now, for a while, we'll look at this passage, and there are several questions I always like to look at a passage and think, what questions does this passage answer? And amongst them, how do we know what right and wrong is? Do we need the Bible to tell us? Um, the sad case of Grenfell Tower, people were marching demanding justice. But what does justice mean? How do we know what justice is? How do we become Christians? What does that mean? And then perhaps this one. Um, the church is declining in Scotland. Uh, There's a report that came out yesterday and the uh, Times in particular carried an article about it which shows that in the past two decades the Church of Scotland has fallen from 35% of the population to 18%. The Catholic Church is down from 15% to 10%. Other churches are 11%. Now almost 60% of people in Scotland say they have no religion. And that is a huge drop. And by the way, it's far worse than that. This survey says that 12% of people in Scotland attend church on a weekly basis. No, they don't. If that was the case in Dundee, today, right now, there would be 15,000 people in church. It's not even half that. So, uh, you know, the situation is much, much worse. But what fascinated me about this was the solution that the Times offered and also analysts and experts quoted by the Times. Uh, uh, let me just give you some of this. Um, the differences between the moral stances of mainstream churches on issues such as same-sex marriage in church and the opinions of the public and the state are partly to blame, analysts say. The churches are seen as socially conservative, particularly alienating the younger sections of an increasingly liberal society. If the Kirk is able to push through liberalizing measures such as allowing ministers to oversee same-sex marriage ceremonies, it is possible that its appeal may broaden somewhat to younger, more socially liberal Scots. So there you have the answer. We just need to go along with the values of the culture and the churches will be full. I have, I've told you this story before, but I will repeat it again because it's just indicative of how wrong that statement is. There was a gentleman here once who told me through in the hall when he was picking up his granddaughter, um, our minister doesn't teach the Bible because it doesn't attract the young people. So I said to him, hmm, that's interesting. I said, in this church, we do teach the Bible and there's a lot of young people. How many young people are in your church? None. I said, can't you see my problem? And he couldn't actually. It took a while for him to grasp it. But what suggested here is, you know, let's, let's go to Rome and, and, and see. Mike, can you imagine Paul saying this? The situation that Paul was facing was far, far worse than our situation. 
It's a pagan city where Christians are in an even smaller minority, where they really do face persecution. Now, can you imagine Paul writing his letter to the Romans and saying something like, this is how Roman society thinks. This is how Roman society acts. Now, let me tell you, in order to appeal to the Romans, in order to get the younger demographic, the young Romans, then what we need to do is accept their culture and values and promote them. Maybe we could have, I don't know, outreach, gladiatorial events, where you know Christians fight one another to death or something. Let's endorse the lifestyles of those who are sexually promiscuous. Let's not condemn those who kill their children through infanticide and abortion. Let's suck up to the politicians and business leaders and not challenge the greed and corruption. If Paul had thought like that, Romans would be a very, very different book, and we would never have heard of it. But look what he does in Romans chapter 1. He, he, he describes Roman society, and he is just devastating in his critique of that society. I think in today's church, people would say, Paul, tone it down a wee bit. Sounds a bit harsh, a bit legalistic, a bit judgmental. But Paul is, is, wants to come to Rome to tell people the good news. And yet, when we, we read that at the beginning of Romans 1, and then by the time we get to the end of Romans 1, it, it doesn't sound very good news. It does sound very condemnatory. He says, all are condemned because all know and, and have evidence of God in creation, yet refuse to acknowledge him. In Romans 2, he goes on to say, but those of you who are religious, you're just as bad, if not worse. Even when you acknowledge the one true God, even when you have the law of God, you are condemned also. Now, here's, here's the problem any sensible person reading this is going to have. How is this good news? You know, the, the times want us to come to people and say, listen, we agree with you and we just want to tell you that Jesus loves you the way that you are and the way that your culture is and just go along with it. And the time seems to think that if we, I don't know, just become like Jeremy Corbyn or maybe, maybe not Theresa May nowadays, but you know what I mean, that just somehow then people will flock to the churches. No, they won't. We need the teaching of the gospel, but it does seem counterintuitive because what we've read from Paul so far seems quite heavy and quite negative. And as we go on and we look at these verses here, it's kind of like he piles even more on. See, Paul has been saying that Jew and Gentile are alike, and I think that the Jewish readers, the Jewish listeners may be tempted to say, but wait a minute, we have the law of God. And Paul's answer to that is, yes, you do, but so do the Gentiles. So we'll just notice this. Having the law is not enough. Having the Bible, by the way, is not enough. Obeying it is necessary. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. If you sin apart from the law, that's the Gentiles. They don't know God's law. If you sin under the law, that's the Jews, it's the same thing. The law here, by the way, clearly refers to the law of Moses. And what he's saying is it's not enough just to hear the law. You have to believe it and obey it. James 1 verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. See, the solution 
to the decline of the church in this country and the solution to the problems in this country is not more religion. It's not people just saying, well, people just need to get the Bible and then they'll be fine. No, having the Bible is one thing. Having the Bible is a great thing. But believing it and doing it, that's another thing. And what Paul says is, we all sin. None of us is able to perfectly keep God's law. And he adds another principle. All of us who sin will also be judged. It's a basic principle of justice. When people march saying, justice for the Grenfell victims, I wonder if they know what they're actually asking for. Because it's right. It's right to ask for justice. But we can't just ask for justice for one group of people. We need to ask for justice for ourselves and for the things that we do and we say and the things that are wrong. And there are so many things in our culture and society where we need justice. We do live in an unjust society. It is not right and it is not fair that there are children who will be born in this city this month whose prospects of a good life will be considerably less than many others. It's not justice that the kind of school you go to, whether it's a good school or not, will be dependent on the area in which you live. It is not justice that the health care that you get is dependent on the money that you have or your prospects of advancement in a chosen career are dependent on the connections that you've got. Those things are not just. It is not just that we can throw away billions of pounds worth of food every year and there are people in the world who starve because of a lack of food. So there is great injustice in the world, but when we're asking for justice, we need to realize that it's justice across the board. We can't just say, well, we're going to have justice for some, but not for others. It's also interesting that the basic principle of justice here is you are not judged according to a law that you do not know. We're judged according to what we do know. And that's why in verses 14 and 15, Paul says that God's law is revealed in our hearts. There is a big mistake that atheists and some Christians make. And the mistake is this, that you need the Bible to give you morality. That is not true. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us this, that we all have morality by very nature of being human beings made in the image of God. You don't need a religious book to get morality. We have, virtu- we have morality by virtue of being human and being created in the image of God. So you're making a mistake as a Christian when you say, well, people won't have morality without the Bible. That's not true. That's how all of us end up being judged, by the way. Animals don't get judged. Your cat doesn't get judged for killing a mouse, right? Because it doesn't know what it's doing. I mean, I, mean, I know cats are evil. Sorry. For those of you who love cats, that's offend the cat fraternity, you won't live long, I know. But, but they are evil, basically. But your cats, you know, they don't know. The animals don't know. But we do know. Now, it may be that there are human beings who develop such psychopathic tendencies that the, res- the responsibility is gone. But that, that those are the absolute exceptions. The fact is that we all have responsibility. And 
That's because God's law is written in our hearts. Now, when Paul was writing this to the Romans, he was writing it to a people who would have known of Aristotle's ethics or Plato's Republic. In Plato's Republic, which is an amazing book, by the way, he discusses about how you get justice and how you can have justice. And there's some great things in it. There's things that are true, things that are real. See, again, the Christian doesn't say the only way you know what's good is because of the Bible and every other religion and every other philosophy is entirely wrong. No, it's not. There's, you'll, you'll find across every human society there's an awareness of right and wrong. That may be distorted, but it, it, Paul is saying it's there. So he's, he's saying to the Christians in Rome, now there's good news. Um, in a sense, there's bad news because we're all stand condemned before God because we go against his law. You think that you've got God's law because you're religious, but in actual fact, everyone has God's law because it's written on their hearts. People have some knowledge of God's requirements within. Earlier, he said people have a knowledge of God that comes from without because we look at the creation, but there's a knowledge of God that comes from within. And that's how you get somebody like C.S. Lewis or um, through reading C.S. Lewis, Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, who they came to believe in God because of what's called the moral argument. How do we know? How are we aware of what's right and wrong? And Paul wasn't the first person to use it because it's there right from the very beginning, but he emphasizes it. Now, here's the thing. Knowing what's right and wrong doesn't save us because we have to do what's right and avoid what's wrong. But as he says here, some of our thoughts accuse, some of us defend us. Our own thoughts condemn us. We are judged in that way. And he sets up a court scene where there are three witnesses, our hearts on which the requirements of the law have been written, our consciences prodding us, correcting us, and our thoughts accusing and sometimes excusing us. This is a huge part of what it is to be human, to take responsibility. And let me just put in a wee caveat here in terms of our culture. Just an observation about our society today. When we forget God's law, whether written on our hearts uh, or written in his word, we end up with disaster. Why? Because if we treat people like a blank slate who don't know right or wrong, then we end up making numerous rules trying to, to... educate them, trying to control them, trying to get them to behave in a particular way. Now, the infantilization of our society just depresses me. I actually saw a jar of peanut butter that said on it, may contain peanuts. Warning. I'm sorry. Um, Do you remember, it stopped now, but in Dundee Railway Station, you used to go up and down there and, and used to have this constant warning that just really got into your head. Be careful on the steps. You know, there are steps, you may fall over. They weren't concerned about stopping you falling over. They were concerned about you suing if you did fall over. You know, I mean, there are steps. You may fall over. Sorry, duh. You know, do we need all the time to have that? But that's what happens. Um, You know, don't put your hand in the fire. It may hurt you. I'm sorry, you say that to a two-year-old. But to have adults being treated in that way. Well, that's what we've done because we've forgotten God's law and we think that people need to have laws about absolutely everything to stop them doing stupid stuff because they can't think for themselves and they don't know what's right and wrong. Whereas in a mature society, you would appeal to the sense of right and wrong. 
Now, this verse is also not saying that we know God's law perfectly, but it is saying that there's an awareness. We need to be reminded, even though sometimes our consciences can be seared as with a hot iron. So, how do you know what's right and wrong? You know by virtue of being human and by having God's law written on your heart. And that's across cultures. Murdering, stealing, lying. These are things that innately are wrong. And we don't know it because we've evolved that way. We know it because we are made in the image of God. Verse 16 then goes on to say that this is going to take place. God will, when God judges men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel proclaims. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 have said you can't escape judgment. Verses 5 to 11 have said it's a righteous judgment. And now these verses tell us God knows all so he can judge our secrets. We don't know all. That's again one of the things, if I go back to the Grenfell Tower thing, one of the most distressing things about that, apart from just the horror of the loss of life, is how quickly people jumped in and said, this is what went wrong. This is what happened. And because we've got the internet, people form opinions very quickly. But let's say they do um, an inquiry and it lasts two years or five years and costs millions, will they still find out exactly? Will they know everything? No. But God knows. First Samuel sixteen seven. the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In some ways, for some of us, that may appear to be a comfort. But for most of us, I think it is a very humbling thing. God knows all the appearances that we put on, all the stuff that we do to show our best side, all the pretense that we have, God knows. God knows. You have searched me, O Lord, Psalm 139, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. This is the important thing about God's judgment. It will be absolutely fair and there will be no miscarriage of justice because God knows all the facts. Second thing about the judgment is this, that God judges all through Jesus when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. See, our analysts and our Times journalists will tell us, we don't like that Old Testament God. We want the Jesus of the New Testament, but the Jesus of the New Testament is the one who's the judge. You'll get what you want. But the Jesus you're thinking of isn't the cute, cuddly Jesus who's your pet, who will give you whatever you want and endorse whatever lifestyle you like. John 5.22, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. God the Father judges no one, says Jesus. Your judge will be me. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Paul tells the Athenians, Acts seventeen thirty one, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. If you're not a Christian, one day you will meet Jesus and you will meet him as your judge. And if you are a Christian, one day you will meet Jesus and you will meet him as your judge who is also your savior. And that's just a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to know that. And that's why he says this is good news. I mean, it's a bit strange, isn't it? All who sin apart from the law, and you read that, and it seems a bit convoluted and a bit heavy. And then Paul says, this is the gospel. This is what my gospel declares, that God will judge men's secrets. (coughs) Why is that good news? It's good news that there's justice. It's good news that everything is not random. It's good news that everything will be sorted out in the end. It would be bad news because of the judgment involved, which affects us. But the reality is that in the darkness, God's justice shines even more brightly. Now, it's important here that the connection of judgment with the gospel should not be overlooked. John Stott says this, we cheapen the gospel if we represent it as a deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and other felt needs instead of as a rescue from the coming wrath. That is important. It's important that we realize the gospel is telling us that God is going to judge the world. God is going to bring unique justice into this world. And we would be consumed by that if we're not for what Jesus had done. Now I want to say something about conscience, particularly because he stresses it so much here. Their conscience is also bearing witness. I want to deal with it because I think at a practical pastoral level for all of us, it is a huge thing. How do we deal with a guilty conscience? Now, some of you don't have guilty consciences, and you should. And some of us do have guilty consciences, and sometimes we carry a guilt that we shouldn't. So I I want to just give kind of an overview of what Paul is bringing up here about, because this is so important in the Bible, that conscience, conscience is not, I, I, those of you who are brought up in the Catholic Church, I meet so many people who are ex-Catholic who go, oh, I've got that Catholic guilt thing. And then those of you go, oh, well, you should see the Calvinist guilt thing. And then I, I met a couple once said, yeah, well, I'm a Catholic married to a Calvinist and we're from Lewis, so what do you think we've got? You know, it's like, I've got the guilt, 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 and they're all laying the guilt on and laying the guilt on. And, and, you know, you understand that because any of you who've, you know, if you've ever been involved in bringing up children or something, you don't bring up children by saying, you're just horrible, you're just scum of the earth. You're just, you know, you don't, that's not how you bring up children. And the perception is that sometimes that's how it's being taught, but this is not how it's taught. Let, let's just, this overview of the Bible, and I accept that because of time it's, it's going to be relatively superficial, but I hope it's helpful. Conscience is, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a person's moral sense of right and wrong viewed as acting as a guide to one's behavior. Now, the fact is that we suppress our consciences. And this is what happens. It's as though there's a wound within us and it scabs over. And so we learn to ignore the wound. 
And often what will happen is when God brings his word to us, the Holy Spirit picks the scab. I'm sorry, it's a gross illustration. But just rips it off. And it's really painful. And, it, and you'd rather not know. You'd rather continue with, with the wound than have it be dealt with. And that's why some of you are so good at rejecting the gospel because you won't listen to the Spirit working in and through His Word, showing you where you need salvation because you've covered it over. You've forgotten about it. You think you've forgotten about it. Of course, you haven't because it's still there. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Well, Paul says uh, to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. How do you live if, let's say, you're lying and cheating at work and yet you come home and you're just a loving parent or wife or husband or whatever or you come to church and you're the good church member and yet you've been lying and cheating or you've been abusive to people or there's stuff in your past. You know, I've seen this so many times. Forgive me for this example. I'm not... There are many, many examples that we could have, but I can think of people who had an abortion, believed what society said, oh, it's okay, it's just a wart being removed and so on. But within themselves, in their conscience, they knew it was wrong. They knew it was wrong. And they get really angry if you try to talk, if anyone ever talks about abortion, they get really, really prickly about it. And they need to come to terms with what has really happened because their conscience is telling them it was wrong. It's not just other people imposing guilt. This we know, we know. I remember um, sometimes I've done things or said things and, and then felt a wee bit guilty about it and said it and someone has far too quickly said to me, don't worry about it, David. You didn't really mean it and it didn't really do any harm and you were, you know, it's okay. But actually it wasn't okay. It wasn't okay. It was wrong. And I need to face up to that wrong. See, the times is wrong and the analysts are wrong saying that we're going to renew the church by suppressing con conscience, by going along with a corrupt and decadent culture. No. Paul, again in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.19, hold on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. You ever think about that as a Christian? That one of the reasons that people suffer shipwreck and backslide is not just that they lose faith, but they lose a good conscience. So you're saying, I believe in Jesus, and I, you, you can agree with all the right doctrines, but in yourself, you have a really guilty conscience because of the way you've been behaving and what you've been doing, and you refuse to face up to it. As a Christian, you refuse to face up to it. How many times have I seen people who say, oh, I am a sinner, and they can accept that in a general sense, but in a particular sense about a particular thing, they won't accept it. They will excuse it. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. Can you honestly hold up your hands and say, my, my, my hands are clean, my heart is pure? 
1 Timothy 3.9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Romans 9.1, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. See, Maybe we're a little too quick sometimes to rush and reassure ourselves and to reassure others, no, it doesn't really matter that you feel guilty because Jesus has forgiven you and everything's fine. But everything is not fine if you take the doctrine and the teaching about Jesus dying for our sins and forgiving and yet we ourselves refuse to acknowledge our sins and refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Some of us, have suppressed and squashed the Spirit so we can no longer hear him when he talks to us, warning us, pricking our consciences. You know, Paul on the road to Damascus, in the old AV version, I love this, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What does that mean? It means that whilst Paul was persecuting Christians in himself, he felt it was wrong and the Holy Spirit was working in his life. See, I don't think the Holy Spirit was working in Paul's life just when he had that Damascus Road experience. I think the Holy Spirit was working in his life from the moment that he stood and approved Stephen being stoned to death. And his conscience bothered him. And sometimes when your conscience bothers you, you go the opposite way. You know, you resist, you resist. But God broke through. Some of us, I need to balance this a little bit because some of us here... Um, we know about a guilty conscience. We walk around with it all the time. You know, it's like your feelings. Oh, my feelings, this, my feelings. Oh, my goodness. Here we go with the feelings again. And, and we're just overwhelmed with guilt. First John 3.19, this is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. You have no right to wallow in guilt. No right whatsoever. In some ways, that is as bad as ignoring conscience, is to indulge it. I think those of us who are Christians, we need to think about this a good bit more. And we need to think about how we can be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And not be so quick to rush in and defend ourselves or not um, overindulge our guilt. But maybe those who are not Christians, I was reading this um, in John Newton. He says this, when conscience is truly awakened, it acts this officious and troublesome part, but its remonstrances are not confined to one sin. It renews the remembrance and the aggravations of multitudes. Nor is this the voice of a man, but indeed of God, who speaks in and by the conscience. The, sport, the poor sinner hears and trembles. Then the complaint of Job is understood. You write bitter things against me and make me to possess the iniquities of my youth. Our consciences do need to be awakened. The Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. How horrible, how horrible to see people who... There was a mob in Pakistan last week and I listened to an interview about, with some people who were involved in that. And one man said, you know, the only thing I regret is that I wasn't able to get close enough to punch the man who died because of blasphemy. And I thought, you've got to, that's your conscience. 
How, how can you do that? How can human beings do that? But we can, and we do. And we need our consciences to be awakened. You know, the, the worst thing for a human being to have is a dead conscience. But when, when our conscience is awakened, how can it be cleansed? How can it be pure? All of us are sinful. It's so easy to pile on guilt. Hebrews 9.14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Only, only when you come to Jesus at the cross and seek forgiveness for your sin will your conscience truly be cleansed. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I prayed at the beginning from Jesus' words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you are here and you have no awareness of your own sin and no conscience of evil within your life, then I'm going to challenge you to pray a very dangerous prayer because it's a very powerful prayer which God always answers. Ask the Lord to show you your sin, your hidden faults, the ones that you ignore, the one that your seared conscience has buried. Ask the Lord to open up. This is the ultimate, if you like, therapy. Ask him to do that. And when he does it, pray that he will enable you to look to Christ, to free you from that. Some of you are here already and you are weary and burdened and you don't know rest and you can't sleep at night and you struggle because of things that you have done in the past, because of wrong paths that you have gone and you think that's it, that's you for the rest of your life. It's not it's not. It is the most extraordinary thing that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. All. See, the world doesn't like this because you can say to the rapist and you can say to the abuser and you can say to the murderer. I have a friend in the ministry who's a murderer. Do you think that any day goes by without him thinking of what he's done. He knows what he's done. But I'll tell you this. He knows the power of the gospel. There isn't a sin here that any one of you has committed that is more powerful than the death of Christ. You can be forgiven. That's why Wesley wrote, Charles Wesley, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose went forth and followed thee. And it's why we're going to sing in just a minute. Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. See, that's the good news. That's the gospel. The gospel is not, this is the way you want to go. We want you to belong to us. So we're going to affirm you in the way you want to go. No, the gospel is this. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty before God. There is no justice in this world without God. We all stand condemned before him. But, but there is forgiveness. There is renewal. 
there is good news. It is possible to be somebody before God, doubly cured of the guilt and the power of sin. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that as Paul wrote to the people in Rome, to the Jew, Jewish Christians even, who thought that, well, just having the word was enough. Lord, thank you that you used your spirit through Paul to convict them that it isn't enough. Thank you that your word needs to be applied with power and it needs to be believed and it needs to be acted upon. Grant that we would be doers as well as hearers of this word. And we come to you, O God, as those who are guilty. We could hardly bear for anyone to know the extent of our sin. We cannot bear to know it ourselves. And we ask in your mercy that you wouldn't show us all of it as you see it, but you would show us enough that we would realize we cannot save ourselves and that we would turn to you. And we bless you, O God, that whatever the condemnation we may feel in our hearts, that as we come to you, we are healed, we are forgiven, our hearts are set free from the guilt and the power of sin. May it be for each one of us in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing um, the song I was mentioning, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. And we shall stand to sing and please remain standing for the benediction. And after